0: Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning
1: opportunities for writers in the most
0: unlikely of places.
1: It's not so much plot-driven, it's character-driven, and these characters will change and they acquire experience and do things in a different way. And so in that sense, the possibilities are sort of endless. Writing a novel is one thing. But daring to build an entire
0: universe in which to set a whole series of novels, well, that's ambitious. At what point do you decide that one book isn't going to be enough, before you even put pen to paper, or some way down the road? And how do you plan for that in your writing? One writer who's begun putting the most captivating series into motion is crime writer Simon Mason. Following on from A Killing in November, Simon's latest novel, The Broken Afternoon, continues to follow detective inspectors Ryan and Ray Wilkins as they solve a new mystery. Simon's novels have been labelled Morse for the 2020s, not only because they're astonishing pieces of work, but also because he took the brave decision of setting the entire series in Oxford, something we'll get to a little later. But first, I'm delighted to say that Simon is my guest today. Chapter 1. Crafting Dramatic Conflict In The Broken Afternoon, a four-year-old girl goes missing in plain sight outside her nursery in a middle-class affluent part of Oxford. Solving the mystery are two detective inspectors who couldn't be more different, yet whose lives are inexplicably intertwined. You have the precise and formal Ray Wilkins and his now former colleague Ryan, who during the last book was dishonorably discharged for his role as detective inspector in the Thames Valley Force, for very good reason too. I asked Simon about the genesis of the series.
1: It was an accident. Ryan Wilkins just sort of strolled out of a trailer park into my imagination in that sort of slouchy, fairly aggressive sort of way. I mean, I find writing in general a mixture of the unconscious and the conscious. And very often the originating point of a story seems to come out of the unconscious. I daydream a scene. I daydream a character. And then the conscious bit sort of chips in and starts thinking, well, that that might be quite interesting, but how would it work? How does it fit? What could explain it? And so on. So it was a a daydream and the daydream was specifically of this character. And I I think really, if, if I think about what sort of writer I am, it's interested in people and characters. And so that seemed to me fairly typical in my experience that I would I would latch on to a character. And then once I had Ryan, then Ray came along as a sort of natural compliment because he was the the opposite. And um, I think there with the partnership, I was interested in um, primarily the dramatic possibilities of interactions between the two. But then there were also all these issues that might also be explored. For instance, Ryan has a, a young son, but Ray doesn't have any children and looks like he and his wife can't have children. And then the obvious contrast of Ryan is from a very disadvantaged, deprived background, very difficult upbringing, and raised from a a super affluent uh, upper middle class. Uh, He's highly educated, he's suave, sophisticated, articulate and lots of things that Ryan simply isn't. And so there's all sorts of possibilities for dramatic conflict, but also possibilities for dramatic reaching across Reaching across the divide, getting to know someone who's very unlike you. And in a in a world of real polarization, I, I thought that might be quite interesting.
0: What's unusual, I think, for a book in this genre, or books in this genre, is that they tend to be very plot focused because they are crime stories, and therefore a crime needs to have been committed, and a crime hopefully needs to be solved, and whoever done it needs to pay in the form of a jail sentence that's typically you know we're very plot heavy when it comes to crime and your book doesn't disappoint on that um your books do focus on the plot but they are also jam-packed with character and there is as much if not more about the two wilkinses as there is the plot and i found that fascinating because it gave me an insight into the way that they think And, and i mentioned this to you in my notes they while they are very different, they are two sides of a complete detective inspector because I think the stories that you've created almost need both Ryan and Ray in them to be able to solve what has happened. And they both have very different techniques. They go about things in a different way. They both have a very different understanding and sensitivity to the law and how it is applied. They do things that the other wouldn't and vice versa, which I think is really nice. But they are so character-focused, these stories that you've written, that it was almost a surprise. And it made me think about my own writing and go back and having a look at some of the crime stories that I've written just to see how much character I, I put in. And I was relieved that there was enough, but certainly not as much as you've put in. And that that gave me you know, a different understanding of how this case might unfold, because I'm having to understand what would Ryan do and what would Ray do? And you put each of them almost in the wrong situation at times. And I found myself thinking, "Ah, uh, we need Ray here, and we've got Ryan, right? This yeah, is yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is going to be really interesting." Obviously, that was deliberate, right? Because obviously, yeah. we want interesting things to happen. But they are sort of two sides of of, of one complete detective inspector, aren't they?
1: Yes, no, that's that's very astute. I, I think that's right, and that's the way I view it. They're contradictory, but also complementary. But the thing about character is really interesting to me when I first wrote a crime novel it was actually for a, a young adult audience I'd never done it before I'd written what might be called literary novels I, I, I had this idea I rang my agent I said I've got a great idea Anthony I'm going to write this crime novel for young adults and there was a long pause and he said oh my god I beg you not to I <laughs> beg you not to get therapy whatever you need Simon but he's had enough of literary novelists saying that they could churn out a potboiler crime novel, you know, for a bit of cash and thinking it was an easy thing to do. And I I never thought that. I had to decide what I did think about a crime novel. And I I thought to myself, it's got to have a really good page turning plot. It's got to have charismatic characters and it's got to have a great setting. Those were the three things that I said. But when I think about what makes a page turning plot, what makes action really gripping, I think it's when the reader is engaged with the characters. Mm. You know, if, if the reader is not emotionally engaged with the characters, they don't care what happens, basically, in that piece of action. But if you engage them with the characters, if you make them interested and feel for the characters and care for the characters, then that action becomes so much more vivid and dramatic. And I think I've always really operated on that principle, that it's our, in stories, it's our engagement with people that really is the source of all the power in them.
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, let's talk about setting then, since you said that was the third and final of the three things that were important to this sort of story. This is a setting that is familiar to people who will have read crime fiction stories this is set in oxford and i was intrigued as to why that was and then i was also delighted that it felt fresh it felt like no one had ever written in this city before or in this precinct before even references to places like jericho and woodstock put you in mind of iconic colin dexter novels and then obviously the the morse franchise on on television and yet I quickly forgot all about that. And I was so heavily focused in the hands of a very trusted writer that this felt like a brand new precinct. So let's just talk about that. Was that any trepidation about standing with your size nine boots all over Oxford? Because this is a very familiar setting, isn't it?
1: Yes, absolutely. I I just thought it was an act of grotesque stupidity, you know, (laughs) a real a real strategic blunder <laughs> the tr- the truth is i'm i'm not a massive researcher so i live in oxford it's very handy to set something in oxford i tend to write about what's around me and so i fell into it and i really said to myself even when i was writing it this is stupid why am i doing this you know it's the least original move i could possibly make and anyway i was helped by my ignorance in the I've never read any Morse novels, right, and so I wasn't in danger of sort of unless by coincidence sort of doing the same sort of thing, and I also didn't have the burden of thinking I must do something different. I just did what what I was doing without any reference to it, so I was sort of fortunate in that respect, and then I got massively lucky with the reviewers of a killing in November because it turned out that what was interesting to them or handy was they were able to review a killing in November and say, guess what? It's set in Oxford like Morse, but it's different from Morse in these sorts of ways. And so Morse became a peg on which the reviewers could hang a review of my book. And um, so I was just I was so relieved because I I assumed people would say, you know, why? We don't need it. Thanks very much. Chapter two, that doesn't
0: happen here. It shows a real strength in an author's capabilities when they can take such a well-known setting and make it feel fresh. There are no new stories just new ways of telling them. And by shining a spotlight on some of the less attractive parts of Oxford, Simon has breathed new life into very well-trodden territory. And Oxford really couldn't be a more perfect setting. As a writer, there really is something so wonderful about crime in an area that looks spotless, affluent, happy and middle class, watching on as that surface wealth and comfort gets exposed and begins to unravel, tearing the community apart. As a human being, it's horrific, but as a writer, it's absolutely brilliant.
1: You've put your finger on it. I mean, I again, in this book, like the previous book, I sort of daydreamed the opening scene, but it had such resonance for me precisely because it was a crime occurring in a rich, privileged, affluent setting where you think, that happens elsewhere, not here. And I think that, that raises the dramatic intensity of the situation enormously. You almost don't have to do anything more than that. And and indeed, I don't tend to focus on the actual crimes, but on the the context and the impact of the crimes. So yeah, and and in general, I suppose that's true that I'm, I'm going into different areas of Oxford and exploring different parts of Oxford. And Oxford's a very a very divided city in lots of ways. You know, It is visibly a city of contrasts. You, you go to the center and the great big colleges of the university are sort of these symbols of, of grandeur and affluence and privilege and power. And then you can go to a trailer park very near. We live near one. And go to areas like Blackbird Lees or Rose Hill or Barton where it's a very different sort of setup. And um, I'm not the sort of writer who is motivated primarily by themes or issues that I want to deal with. But I find that they they, they are there inevitably in the fabric of the story. And then they they can be teased out a little bit, perhaps, to be part of the drama. The consequences
0: of action in stories fascinate me. They really do. You know, you, you might at a, a very high level say things like film – Films are about action. Things like theatre is about the consequences of action. And that's what you're dealing with in in this particular story, about what it does to the family of the missing girl, what it does to the people around that family at the nursery, what it does to the police who are trying to to solve this, and, of course, the, the local community. This act, this disappearance, weighs so heavily. You set up a very nice ticking clock through the process that needs to occur in order to find this person and the fact that we all know that the first 24 to 48 hours are critical and after that the chances of finding somebody alive start to start to fade so there is a very clear ticking clock but the weight of responsibility on ray who is charged with the investigation of this by the new superintendent really starts to have an impact on him doesn't it because when we first see him I mean, it's very telling that the reaction to his press conference is wow what a good-looking detective He is, which tells you all you need to know about the affluent, you know, comfortable, privileged society that we're we're actually shining a light on here. But that weight of responsibility. But he is a very different character at the end of this book than he is at the start, because it just it all unravels for him, doesn't it? As he's trying to find this helpless little girl. And he is at the beginning, the big man with the big responsibility. And just he just caves under this pressure, doesn't he?
1: Yes, um, that is very much part of the, the story. And, and in a sense, I focus here at least as much on Ray as on Ryan, maybe a little bit more. And the changes, as you point out, uh, that Ray undergoes are, are really quite profound. But the, the point you made right at the beginning, I really um, relate to about the impact of criminality on the people involved. And I remember still watching the killing on TV. And that was a, a series where the focus was so dramatically on the distress of the family affected by the crime. And I felt it lifted the whole crime and the investigation of the crime and all the drama of the the plot to a different level. So I really did want to focus on on the fallout, in particular on the, the young mother, who, who is straightforwardly distraught. And on the father, and they're a separated couple who is uh, sort of distraught in a different sort of way, but equally knocked sideways as as you would be. And then of course on on Ray as well. You know, Ray in this situation is, uh, he's going through this, uh, well, his wife is is pregnant with twins and uh, and she's having a bad time. And so fatherhood is very much on his mind. I found when I became a father, I also became connected in a, a more dramatic way with my own father. And I think that happens to Ray as as well. And his father is the sort of father who puts pressure on his son. So Ray feels then I've got to live up to be my my father's son, as well as as you point out, living up to be this um maybe glamorous looking detective on national T V leading this investigation. So the pressure on him is is really immense. Not least when he
0: finally goes to the antenatal glasses and you you can see the reaction that the the other about to be parents have knowing that this is the man who is trying to find
1: a missing girl I mean
0: every he cannot it's he can't escape from it at any point can he
1: no that's right so it, it becomes part of his intimate life and then it affects it affects everything he does and I I mean without wanting to reveal what happens the pressure it puts him under does lead him to do some perhaps slightly unexpected things, but I think that's what pressure does. It it, uh, it prompts you to do things which otherwise you might be able to stop yourself doing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I try to look at this through the eyes of the of the new superintendent, who is, uh, you know, he kind of strikes me as a no nonsense Sir Alec Ferguson type character who who is just a stickler for the for the rule book and is just constantly appalled at the risks and the lengths that. Both Ryan and Ray are going to, in order to try and solve this case. Without talking about what does happen, let's talk around the topic. And there is, there are several references to paedophiles and the way that they think in this book. And I found them both fascinating and appalling in equal measure, and the human Being side of me didn't want to read them the writer was desperate to read what was happening and I found myself turning the pages with increasing amounts of oh god what's he going to do now in terms of the subject matter but did you do research into this because there is a huge amount of information that is attempting to explain the way that pedophiles think not to justify their behavior because that is not what we are in the business of doing but to just sort of explain how they think and why this thing might have occurred because you cannot really expect any sensible person to look at a little girl and think anything other than we need to love and protect this human being right but you go into very dark territory and i loved that and i wondered where that came from and whether you'd had the chance to do much research or whether again that was like the whole thing was a happy accident
1: well, I've already confessed I don't do probably as much research as I should. I, I did do some research, but I, I also didn't want to get so into research that the research would be the lens through which I saw the right. subject. I, I wanted to try to imaginatively engage with the characters involved as a as a writer does. I mean, I I didn't set out really when I started the story to say anything in particular. And I, I sort of, I mean, you're probably familiar with this. There is a sense in which you follow the story or the story goes where it seems to want to, and you try to keep up. And I knew I didn't want to, I knew I must avoid sensationalizing the crime, which as you point out, is is you know maybe the, the most shocking crime of all. At the same time, I wanted to to make sure that I properly represented the horror of it. And I did find myself then having the characters there are, well, there's a character who, who's a convicted um, pedophile talking about it from his perspective, which I thought would be a way of of being more than usually chilling to have mm-hmm. uh, someone like that describe it. And then there's also in, in the book a recording of... Um, uh, Peter Farring discussing what they might do again in, in very oblique terms but it's the tone partly in which they discuss what they're doing which i felt might be more effective than showing any appalling scene so to come at it through the through the characters as we say on on, on the one hand the distressed and distraught characters who've been victims and on the other hand the transgressors themselves Chapter 3. Tick. Tick.
0: Tick. The ticking time bomb Simon sets up in The Broken Afternoon is palpable. It's such a brilliant way of fostering this dramatic intensity throughout the novel. Being aware of this sense of urgency really made me conflicted about the characters and their decisions. Despite all clearly wrong or illegal things they do, you can't help but agree, even if you know deep down their actions might make things worse. I ended up begging for Ryan and Ray to break more rules and take more risks because I too felt ever more desperate. It's so serves as such a clever tool to set the stakes so high
1: for both ryan and ray um one of the the tricks which i think they fail to perform is to keep a balance between their emotion and their professional ways of going about investigating and as you point out that that's harder for ryan who's a more instinctive sort of person and will uh as you say kick down doors or or maybe assault people or certainly verbally assault people at, at the drop of a hat in a way it's it's worse pressure for ray though because he's he's so much in the in the limelight when it comes to the investigation and ryan maybe it's worth saying without spoiling too much at the beginning of this book is is not actually a policeman he's been dishonorably discharged from the force at the end of a killing in november and he's he's working as a quite
0: quite rightly too quite rightly too yeah
1: his behavior is not great but anyway he is at the beginning of the story in a a different job he's a night security watchman at a a van rental place uh, on an industrial estate down the botley road and what he's doing is is sort of an unofficial separate investigation uh, at least to begin with but uh ray's horror really he keeps prompting ray to do things that ray maybe has missed and one of the things about ryan is he's not very highly educated but he is very sharp and he sees things perhaps that other people miss yeah and he is incapable
0: of filtering his own propensity to be a social hand grenade which, yes. I, which i which makes us love him you know because you you just know he's going to do something stupid. In whatever situation he finds himself. The book that's out, the second book in the series is called The Broken Afternoon. When I when I was writing my notes to you, I I intimated that it's not just the afternoon that's broken. Pretty much everything is broken here. We have a broken society, a shattered family. We have a broken police force that doesn't have the resources, it doesn't have the clues, it never catches a break. It's just everything about this, you know, from relationships between the police to relationships at home to to this privileged, affluent society. There is this sense that every single component of it is broken, and it has taken a shocking crime like this to shine a light on that. I wondered whether, again, it's just a title, but for me, it, it really is the metaphor for, for everything that this book represents.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I do agree. As I say, I don't set out to explore issues or themes. They tend to arise from the immediate story I'm trying to tell about the crime. But, um, you know, I think of it as quite an angry book, really. And there's a lot to be angry about in our society, our culture. And, and full disclosure, my politics are left of centre, right? So you'd expect me not to like the current government but if you leave aside party politics it's hard not to not to recognize the the sheer dishonesty and and corruption and incompetence and poor ways of dealing with things that have happened beyond the government's control that have of you know it's been going on a long time I suppose but over the last 13 years it seems to me to have become particularly acute and we are in this situation now where so much seems broken. And so dramatizing that through the crime story was was something I, I did want to do. And as I wrote it, I became increasingly conscious of, of wanting to do that. Yeah, we're bust. I agree.
0: I, I think anger is a fabulous motivation for a writer because that's when you're probably at your most alive is because something has created this rage within you that I think writing is a natural outlet for that rage and we're trying to shine a light on things that are broken and some of these things we can potentially find solutions for but not all and the world needs people like Ray and Ryan in them as dysfunctional as they both are you know that's what we're dealing with and if you look up at the government level I don't know why we assume or used to assume that politics is staffed with incredibly well-intentioned people i'm sure there are many well intentioned people in but it's also staffed with a lot of self serving a lot of a lot of corruption a lot of just you know being along for the ride and that is going to have an impact at the ground level and i think by turning your anger into a crime series it it's very very helpful first of all for you because it's good you know it's good for you to have an outlet for that but also yeah. because of what it what it does for the reader i got to the end of both of these books and and, and felt that Actually, it's not all right. You know, just I believe now that not being a part of the problem isn't enough. So I'll give you an example, right? So if you see, it's not enough for me to not join in with homophobic chanting for example. I can't just not join in. I have to call it out. That's what I believe. I believe I should actually take an active step for, you know, things like homophobia, misogyny, whatever it might be, right? It's not enough. What you've done is realize that it's not enough to be a part of this. You have decided to write about why this is a problem. And I think that's wonderful. And I wondered if we could just talk about where we go with this, because the reviews are rightly full of plaudits for this new exciting crime series that feels not just like we're two books in it feels like we're 22 books in Simon. it really does because I felt so safe and and in your assured hands but given that we're now only two books in there will be a massive clamor for books three four five etc when you think about the precinct and you think about these two characters have you got much more material left in you are you are you not wanting to put any of that pressure on yourself because other people will try and put the pressure on you I'm sure
1: yeah um I haven't uh plotted out a long story arc that's pretty pathetic isn't it but um I, look, there's there's a there's a practical consideration here, which I, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of, which is that a publisher would like to encourage a series in an author, but they don't know it's going to work from the the beginning, so they they tend to encourage it in dribs and drabs. There'd be a two book deal here, and then maybe a two book deal afterwards. And, um, you know, at any point, if a book doesn't sell well, the publisher might justifiably say we don't actually want any more. So partly for that reason, I'm trying to justify it now, partly for that reason, I haven't got a long story arc. The other reason is I just haven't got around to it or um, I'm just too lazy. I suppose what I trust is that if my stories are about characters principally, or that's the way I think of them, then there will always be stuff that I can I can think of them doing. It's not so much plot driven, it's character driven. And these characters will change and they acquire experience and, and do things in a different way and find themselves in different situations. And so in that sense, just like in life, the possibilities are sort of endless as to what might happen. I have written a third book now, which I, I just delivered. So in The Broken Afternoon, Ray is in the limelight as lead investigator in in the third book ryan becomes lead investigator with ray reporting to him which is um an unusual situation and and doesn't particularly go very well that doesn't (laughs)
0: sound like it will go well
1: (laughs) (laughs) i mean um the superintendent you you mentioned dave Barco wallace and and he's a sort of glaswegian of copper of the old school and he he's very strict with ryan and doesn't take any nonsense. But he's sort of a father figure to Ryan. Barco doesn't really like Ray. Ray is from this privileged, affluent background. He's, you know, he's got a, a first class honours degree from Balliol College and he's a boxing blue and he dresses very Natalie So Barco doesn't like him either. So giving Ryan a chance to lead an investigation sort of fits that fits his attitude, but it, it turns out to be a strategic error. So anyway, the third is done, and then I, I've got another one coming up, and I'm have a. I'm just starting to have ideas about it, but really I'm proceeding inch by inch.
0: There is a wonderful sequence with Ray at the centre of it in this book. I mentioned it to you in my notes. There are many, bizarrely, in a crime story such as this one, there are many laugh-out-loud moments in the way that the characters talk to each other, but there is one sequence where... Ray is asked what's the plan and his reply is don't fuck up and the the, the counterpoint to that is just a single word response which is ambitious given given that he spent he spent the last two thirds of the book doing exactly that and fucking up Um, so delighted to hear that there's a third book we'll wait that um, with interest can we talk about your previous work you've talked about your writing for a young adult audience but I'm also intrigued as to how you came to be a writer, given all of the other work that you've done. Do you think that your previous roles have been preparing you for for this work now as a crime writer?
1: Yeah, in different ways. I I think I do. I mean, I've had a sort of split career. So for 35 years, I was a publisher and I was writing in my spare time. But what I've written has changed over time. So I started with um, what you might call literary novels for adults in the 1990s. And then we had children. And as I said, I'm the sort of writer that writes about what's around them, really. So I started writing about children and for children. And my children's books, therefore, sort of grew up like my own children, just lagging a few years behind, starting off with seven to nine, eight to 12, and then young adults and now I'm back to adults. And pretty soon I'll be writing for really old people, I suppose. But um, it was the experience of writing for children, I think, that changed me as a writer and the way I wrote children's stories was with an emphasis on the story and the storytelling. And that was the first time I'd really thought about that, about needing to snag someone's attention and hook them in with something, situations that were going on that uh, a reader might be interested in. So in actual fact, although it sounds odd, I think starting to write works of domestic comedy for seven to nine-year-olds was the preparation for writing crime novels for adults. So, yeah, all of the writing I've done, I think, leads to this point. I mean, you you very kindly said you laughed out loud at a bit, which I meant to be funny. So that's a really encouraging, a, a <laughs> encouraging comment. <laughs> I think I do tend to comedy. I've never written a properly comic novel, but I think, I suppose my philosophy is life is ludicrous, right? I'm ludicrous and what people do is ludicrous. And I find it hilarious, I've got to say. And so that tends to come out in my writing.
0: Well, I should point out that while this is a crime series, there is no need to read the books in the order in which they're written. I I read The Broken Afternoon first because of this conversation. I went then back and read A Killing in November. I didn't feel that I missed anything that was in A Killing in November to understand what was going on in The Broken Afternoon. But for people listening to this, the first book is A Killing in November. The second book is out now. It is called The Broken Afternoon. They are both an absolute triumph. I have no doubt that this series will be incredibly well received. It has been an absolute pleasure. Simon Mason, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure for me.
0: Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Simon Mason for today's episode. And to recap what have we learnt? When you're mapping out the personalities and concepts of your characters, don't think of them as people in isolation. Consider who they are within the scope of the rest of your cast list and dig into the opportunities for dramatic conflict among them. Don't be afraid to write in a setting that is already familiar to readers of your genre. Just make sure to shine a new spotlight on it. Do something fresh, something different and don't feel intimidated by what has come before you. And finally, funnel your rage and anger into your writing. Use your skills to highlight the broken parts of this world so they might one day be fixed right from the heart and your readers will come along for the ride. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine, and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. In addition, you can sign up to our email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Show Club in London. These events, titled Inside Stories, are not recorded and not repeated, and will put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe, and keep writing.
1: This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk